I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health and fitness industry to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer, and my co-founder and co-host today, Antonia Banash, is here with us. Yes, hello. So... We've got lots to discuss with you today, but it's all along a theme, really, isn't it? Mm. Of um, it gut is. health, digestion, bloating issues, the connection between the sinus, the lungs and the brain. And another question as well about the benefits of walking, which we're going to cover off. So we've got plenty to cover. But before we do that, I just want to share some exciting news with you. In the last few months, we've had some brilliant stuff go on. But probably the pinnacle of that was discovering last month in August that we've been accepted into the NatWest Business Accelerator. So we are delighted about that. It'll really help push us on to the next level and help us reach our goal, which ultimately is to be London's number one choice for personalized health, fitness and well-being. So that is terrific news. And we just wanted to share that with you. And thank you for all your support and helping us to, to get as far as we've got, really. So to our first topic, which is the 50 and 7 challenge. Now, for those of you that don't know this challenge, I interviewed Shan Nix-Jones, who's the founder of Chuckling Goat Farm and the makers of the goat milk kefir that we both love and endorse and recommend to people. Whilst I was interviewing Shan, she was talking about the need to consume 50 different food types in a week. So I thought about this when I was speaking. I thought, well, I'm not sure if I can see 50 different food types. And then I asked you and you weren't sure. No, I wasn't sure at all. I know that we eat healthily. But whether we eat 50 different types of foods a week, I wasn't that convinced. No. So we put it to the test. And then we thought, well, why not do a broader challenge to all of our audience, but Shan's audience as well? So we put out the challenge across social media in August. The goal being very simply to eat 50 different food types in seven days. And we called it the 50 in seven challenge. And... I think people struggle with this. Mm. We struggle with this. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, talk a little about your experience. Well, initially I thought, yes, I'm not sure that we are eating 50 foods a week. And then I thought, hang on a second, maybe it is actually not that hard. But we got off at a really good start because I think we started the first day or so. We got up to 32 within the first two days. And I thought, okay, Mm. we've got another five days to go. That shouldn't be too difficult. But as the week got on, I just said, oh. God, I have to get all these foods that I normally don't eat and I'm not even sure what to do with them. Mm. And in typical Antonia Banash style, I didn't do enough prep, so food preparation. Mm. So I noticed that food preparation is actually quite essential for this sort of thing, especially if you're going out into new territory and explore new foods and I think, what is this and what do I do with this? And can I eat it raw? Can I not eat it? Do I have to cook it? Do I have to boil it? All these sort of things. So yeah, we ended up at 48, so which I think wasn't too bad. But it did really highlight that even though we eat healthily, we tend to eat the same type of vegetable yeah. day in, day out. Because I just know what to do with them. It's, you know, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, courgettes. I do a lot of courgettes lately because of our, what we have in our garden, what yeah. we're growing in our garden, beetroot with sweet potatoes and that sort of stuff. And you think, oh yeah, it should be easy. But it isn't actually, unless, mm. you know, you, you prep, I would say and you have a big repertoire and you're really into cooking, it might become a little bit easier, but we definitely struggled. I mean, as you say, it was really easy for the first two days because everything was a new food. Yeah. And towards the end of the week, I think we got up to 48. Yeah, 48. 48. But I mean, that was a big effort. We were definitely having to consciously bring in new foods to boost the numbers. So I reckon we probably eat 30. 
Yeah, I had, to, I had to go through the list. So I took a note of what we'd eaten and I said, what did we have yesterday? Oh, we had that. No, we can't have that today. So it is actually also quite interesting in terms of how much would you eat, really? Yeah. Or how little? Or how many vegetables you eat? Yeah. As opposed to, you know. So I think it's just also, it's just a good exercise to do as well in terms of finding out how much vegetables you are eating or not just vegetables, but food. And how much, really, and how little. Yeah, I think the point that... creates awareness, really, Yeah, that you're that, eating. Yeah, a narrow range of <coughs> foods that we eat, and it, it tends to be the same types yeah, of foods. always. Not just us, but I think we probably do a bit better in terms of vegetable consumption than a lot of other people. Possibly, Certainly yeah. some of the ones that we, we start working with yeah. aren't eating a huge diversity of vegetables or even a huge amount full stop. Yeah. And yet we only got to about 30 in yeah. honesty, so, yeah. So, I mean, if you're listening and you didn't go through that challenge... Have a go at it. Just record the different food types, everything. So a banana, an apple, a sausage, and pancake, that would be four different foods. Yeah. Very simple. It's not food categories or types. It's simply different types of food. And see how many you get to. If, like us, you really go for it, we still miss the target of 50. But I think on an ordinary, we would have probably done 30. So yeah. see what you, you get to. It's a really interesting exercise. And one of the reasons this is important is for good gut health, we need to have a really good diversity of bacteria as well as the right amounts of different bacteria. So even bacteria that might be considered to be, quote, bad, is okay to have in the gut in a small or the appropriate amount. So I've had a couple of gut tests recently, which we'll talk about later on in the episode. And in the first one, I had too much of a certain bacteria, not enough Mm. of another good bacteria, but the overall diversity was pretty good. So it's quite a complicated thing. And We're going to talk more about the different types of gut tests that we've done and that we endorse and and things that you can do to explore gut health towards the end of the episode. But let's get to our first question. Mm -hmm. Lou Ellis asks, and this is in the green room, which is the private members area of our Facebook page, Body Shop Performance Limited. Evening all. Thanks for the ad. You're welcome, Lou. Uh, Loving the podcast, by the way, she says. That's good to hear. Question is, the past couple of years, I've read loads on the gut-brain connection, but I was wondering if anyone knew if there's a connection with sinus, lungs, and the brain. Fantastic question. And the answer, we didn't have. No, no, we We are not qualified to answer that. So we got one of our clients and friends, Dr. Becca Moore, who is a specialist in women's health. She's a consultant psychiatrist. She's getting a qualification for integrated medicine soon. And we asked her what she thought about this question. Here's her reply. So... What we know about the health of lungs and the microbiome of lungs is is just at the very beginning of what we're going to understand. So like with the gut, it's increasingly thought that each organ actually has its own unique microbiome. And we're only just beginning to understand what that might be in each organ and even less far down the line of understanding how actually individual organs might communicate with each other or the gut might communicate with different organs. But really in terms of the lung, um, until fairly recently actually, the lungs were thought to be their own sort of sterile unit and it wasn't really thought that there were much, there wasn't really a belief that there was a microbiome in the lungs because it's considered to be sort of a, a sterile entity. You can think of it as being sort of quite isolated in the way that bacteria might come in and out of the lungs compared to, say, the gut. But over the last, I suppose, really 10, 15 years, there's just been an explosion in what we know. And it has been accepted now that there are unique bacteria living within our lungs and within our nose and within our sinus. 
And so there's a huge amount of research going on to look at what those bacteria are and what we might do with that group of bacteria to both prevent disease and perhaps to improve resilience of people with chronic lung diseases. Most of that is done on animal models because clearly it's quite difficult to put things in and out of the lungs. It's not as easy as putting things in and out of our gut. So, you know, there's certainly evidence in looking at particular populations of people. So people with chronic asthma, people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease that have long-term lung disorders, both in identifying what bacteria they might carry compared to somebody without a lung disease. And then in perhaps thinking, I suppose, further down the line, the view is, like we're beginning to do with the gut, is how we might manipulate that population of bacteria to improve health or to stop people with chronic lung disorders to perhaps having so many reoccurrences of infection or disease. So I think that's really, really interesting. But, you know, if we know little about gut health overall, we know even less about lung health. So I think we're at the beginning of a journey where there's lots and lots of interest about that. I think if you flip it the other way around, we also what we do know is that people with long-term lung diseases are more likely to have other diseases in terms of mental health. So more likely to have depression and anxiety and even PTSD, actually, if you have some chronic asthma or chronic sort of life or death scenarios where you think you're going to die because of your attack. So we know that that group are vulnerable as well. So it's really interesting to think about how we might support them with probiotics, say, tailored probiotics into their gut that might then correspond with their lung, which might then make their mental health better. So I think it's an area of increasing interest. And I think we're just at the very, very tip of the iceberg of what we'll know. I think 10 years down the line, we'll know a lot more. I mean, it's definitely not clear how the gut links specifically with the lungs. But I think you've got to think that that's a good starting point because if your gut health is good, and if we increasingly think of many disorders, particularly mental health as being perhaps an inflammatory-based disorder, then if we've got a good regulation in our gut and we know that that can then lead to systemic inflammation coming down, And you can see how then perhaps if you've got good gut health, it's actually then in turn impacting on your lung health and your skin health and your brain health. So there's been some very, very limited research, for example, in terms of people with asthma who often have eczema and hay fever and, you know, are sort of quite allergic type people. There's one very small study where they've manipulated the bacteria in their lungs and found that their skin health improved. So you know, there's got to be some kind of way that all these things are interlinked. And really, if you've got a really healthy, good gut, I can't see how that can't be helpful. You know, that has to be the basis for a lot of good health, I would think. How interesting was that? That was very interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, very, very interesting. A couple of things jumped out for me. One, we talk a lot about health being interconnected, but we talk about it more on a macro level, don't we? Yeah. So our Six Signals methodology, which is sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion and fitness. We talk a lot about how all of that is interconnected. So issues with sleep will will have an effect on mental health, on energy levels, even body composition. 
Similarly, body composition will impact sleep and energy levels, possibly affecting Mm. mental health. So on a macro level, we talk a lot about interconnected health, but on a micro, very micro level, in terms of the bacteria in in our bodies, it's Mm. all interconnected as well as what we're discovering. So fascinating, really. It's quite interesting. I mean, you could also go down the whole esoteric way because I've just been, I was listening recently about to a podcast about with a shaman. Mm. And he has already been saying that organs communicate with each other, literally. So it's probably more on an energy level rather than bacteria level. But I suppose it goes into the same, almost yeah. in the same, yeah, the same direction. Yeah, the body yeah. talking to each other. Yeah. yeah. Can you remember what that podcast was? Don't worry if not, we'll link to it. Not from the, the top notes. of my head, but I think it was a bulletproof one, but I, I'll dig it out. Okay. Yes. So we'll link to that in the show notes. We'll also link to Dr. Beckham Moore's website in the show notes as well. And thank you to Dr. Moore for giving us that insight. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, the other thing I thought was really interesting was the just the way that, that the organs communicate and the link with PTSD as well. Yeah. That in one of the remedies or part of a cure for PTSD could be addressing the gut bacteria mm. and the bacteria in the body. It was really interesting. Mm. That's a fascinating area mm. of of future science. Mm. So I guess, Lou, the answer is yes. There is a connection between the sinus, the lungs and the brain. There's probably more we don't know about it than than what we do. But hopefully uh, Dr. Moore's giving you a bit of an insight there. And it's something you can explore further. We'll look around for any other resources we can find as Mm. well. But okay, well, hopefully that's helpful to you, Lou, and anyone else who's listening as well. I mean, I thought that was was really interesting. Yeah, it was whole how the body is connected and how it communicates is of real interest to me personally Mm. and professionally okay so we also had a question from deborah deborah's question and again this was taken from the green room that private members club we'll link to it in the show notes loving the podcasts thank you deborah started the kafir this week feeling positive thanks for the kickstart you mentioned a few times on different podcasts and research stating that 10 minutes a day walking can assist anxiety and depression. Do you have a link for that research? I want to share with my cousin. She doesn't believe me. Lol. Thank you. <laughs> so, yes, we do have a link and we'll put it in the show notes. It's a Public Health England report, actually. And it's lengthy, but I'm going to read out just a very short passage from it. Brisk walking, which they define as at least three miles per hour is a moderate intensity physical activity and evidence-based intervention for promoting physical activity. It is already prevalent, has no skill, facility or equipment requirement and is more accessible and acceptable than other forms of physical activity. This report, based on a rapid review of the evidence, summarises the potential benefits of 10-minute blocks of brisk walking as part of a contribution to the CMO, Chief Medical Officer's, recommended levels of activity. So for currently inactive individuals, Evidence shows the following health benefits could be achieved from 10 minutes of brisk walking per day for seven days. Increased physical fitness, greater ease of performance of everyday physical activities, improved mood, improved quality of life, increased body leanness and healthier weight, and a 15% reduction in the risk of early death. Pretty extraordinary. It is pretty extraordinary, but you have to think about it in the sense that also we are made for walking. We are designed to walk. So obviously if we don't do what we are designed for, we will get ill, really. Yeah. So what they're recommending is basically, you know, what we should be doing and we will, as a result, feel a lot better because that's what we are supposed to do. We are not supposed to sit at a desk for eight hours. We're supposed to walk. Yeah. Um, so it's a basic human function, really. But people tend to forget. I mean, you know, modern life has just changed so much over the last 150 years that our biology hasn't really caught up with that sort of mm. big 
massive change in our living habits. Mm. Yeah, so we are now seeing the results of that, you know, not walking as much as we used to do, not even, you know, we don't even have to go back 150 years. We just have to look back at our, maybe just our parents' generation or even our grandparents' generation. Mm. I mean, they walked a lot more. Well, they were uh, just a lot more physically active than they had. They were, yeah. Yeah, know, cars they, were a luxury yeah. if they were Indeed, at all. Yeah. I'm not saying they were necessarily healthier, but they were definitely much more physically active with all the technology around us, which has obviously has made our lives a lot easier, much more convenient. But it obviously there's a flip side to it is that we don't do what we are designed to do as a human being, and that is mm. move. It's the obesogenicity mm. through my mouthful of the environment. Basically, it means the environment is increasingly set up to, I suppose, promote obesity. That's what that word is, is mm. indicating. But if you think about our grandparents' generations, they were moving a lot more, they were performing a lot more physical functions, you know, like active transport, housework, they had fewer labour-saving devices, mm. they certainly didn't have as much refined carbohydrate on offer to them all the time, there was less fast food, less time pressure, they didn't have devices that are interfering and dictating mm. what they did next mm. with their time or where their attention goes. So, in fact, a completely different mm. kind of setup. But Deborah, to your point, I would send that study over to your cousin and just talk about, you know, what Antonia's touched on, which is ancestral movement. You know, we were designed to move a lot. And something I talk about all the time, but if you imagine a caveman or a caveman, they'd have woken up with light flooding the mouth of the cave, mm. got up, looked left and right. Is there anything they're about to attack me? Is there anything I can go out and attack and drag back to camp for breakfast, lunch and dinner? And depending on the answer to that question, they'd have then got up, foraging, scurrying, walking, briskly walking, moving things around the camp, mm. sharpening tools, hunting, being hunted, lots of different types of movement. So that's a low intensity, fairly constant level of movement, occasional moderate exercise mm. and very occasional high intensity exercise. And that's the kind of pattern mm. that we should be following. Mm. The other study that I will get my hands on and put in the show notes is the one that I quote frequently, which is that they found that 10 minutes of brisk walking a day had the effect of increasing mood and overall energy levels for up to three hours afterwards. But if participants in the study continued this for three weeks or more, mm -hmm. their overall mood and energy levels were elevated. Mm, interesting. And I think that's the most astonishing return on investment. Yeah. Ten Amazing. minutes Ten of, minutes, of yeah. moderate yeah. or brisk walking yeah. gets you three hours of feeling good and feeling energised. Yeah. That's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. What's surprising is as little as 10 minutes. It really doesn't take very much. No. I mean, it is all about, I suppose, I think there's still this, this idea floating around that you have to exercise at least an hour a day to see benefits when in fact you haven't. You don't have to do yep. that. I mean, we have talked about it many, many times yep. that you don't have to do an hour in the gym to feel the benefits. In fact, an hour in the gym and go back to your desk for another 10 hours sitting and typing is not doing you any good at all. I mean, you know, you're moving for an hour a day and then you sit for the rest of the day isn't great for your health. There's also a study who indicate, who shows, and I sh will link that as well, which shows that sitting eight is the silent killer and one hour of exercise isn't going to make up for 10 hours of sitting at the mm. desk. So it's... it's oh, have you got access to that study? Yes, I had it for one of my... Oh, yes, brilliant. I, 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 I can never like, find that. I, 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 I read I it in one out. of Tim Ferriss's books, but of course you can't really quote something. You think you read from one of Tim Ferriss's books, but the quote that I'm always grasping for is... And I definitely read it. The person that does an hour of intense physical activity and then sits for eight hours is only 4% less sedentary than the person that does Doesn't nothing at all. at all. Yeah. And it comes back to that principle of ancestral movement. We were designed to be on the move in some form mm. or another mm. most of the time. Mm. 
And the other issue with that is connected with sleep, yeah. but we won't go into that right yeah. now. But, but Deborah, I would definitely... Sorry, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, just to go back to this study from Public Health England, it's also, it's aimed at middle-aged people, so between 40 and 60 years of age, and they have identified that that age group, so our age group basically, is really, really inactive. Mm. And as a result of that, you know, serious disease is on the increase. Yes, we live a lot longer, but what's the point of getting you know, to the age of 80, if you suffer from cancer, diabetes, heart disease, all sorts of really serious diseases. Yeah. And it can all be prevented by just brisk 10 minutes walk. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I, I, I would want to build on that personally, but if anyone is really no. sedentary, starting it's a start. there is a great place it's to start. start. It's basically just to keep you alive. Yeah. I mean, and that aside, you've also got neurogenesis, which is the creation of new brain cells. You're going to trigger some natural chemicals in the body, like endorphins. So I'm talking now, relating really back to mental health. Endorphins are going to make you feel good. Mm. There may be some dopamine involved there mm. as well. There's definitely going to be some serotonin. So they are chemicals that are going to make you feel good about yourself. Yeah. That's an important part of exercise as well. And, and you can definitely generate those through brisk walking, certainly serotonin and, and endorphins. Yeah. So. If you are sedentary and you're listening to this, just get out there and get a 10-minute brisk walk a day and see how you feel. Mm. Quantify how you feel afterwards and think, well, what was the, the kind of the reward there? Do I feel better? Do I feel more energized? And Deborah, definitely get your cousin to try it, undoubtedly. Mm. We'll link to those studies in the show notes as well. We've touched there on, on how we can reduce our disease risk. And I, I just want to mention something I meant to mention in our 50 and 7 challenge piece. A 2017 study conducted by the Imperial College of London found that increasing daily diet by just two and a half portions of vegetables resulted in the following benefits. Are you ready for this? I am ready for this. 16% reduction in the risk of heart disease. 18% reduction in the risk of stroke. 13% reduction in the risk of cardiovascular disease. A 4% reduction in the risk of cancer. 15% reduction in the risk of premature death. And higher intakes of fresh vegetables resulted in even greater benefits. Two portions a day. Two and a half portions a day. Wow. So you can't see me, but I'm holding out my palm, my outstretched hand, and two and a half portions of fresh veg would roughly fill that hand, not the palm, the whole hand. And by the way, the people they took, it's quite a broad study, were not people who were already consuming large amounts of fresh vegetables. They were a real random assortment of people right. eating different okay. amounts. So it's all about the increase. Mm and not your base level mm. to start with. So that, again, I thought was extraordinary. So if you're looking at disease risk reduction, increasing your vegetables is a really obvious way to go. Mm. Now, you could get to 50 foods, by the way, in a week and not be eating a lot of vegetables. So I think that's important to note that it really yeah. needs to be around vegetables. Okay. Anything Whole else you want to add yeah. on that? No, that? no. Yeah. So get out walking is the upshot there. Yes. Alrighty, so our last question is from another Lou, and this is again from the green room. Hi, Leanne Spencer and Antonia Benash. I might have missed this session, but I'm suffering from bloating most evenings, and it's getting a bit boring, slightly uncomfortable. I've done the string test, which is waist half size of your height, and in the morning my string meets or overlaps, but after tea it can be inches and inches apart. Should I start a food diary and start or omit foods? Thanks, Lou. Do you know what the string test is? No, I haven't come across that before. Well, it's, I saw it on a BBC program, actually, and it's quite an easy way. You know, sometimes when you get clients and they want to know, you know, you want to take measurements, it's a really way, an easy way to kind of measure it, actually. So you take a string, which is basically as long as you are mm -hmm. tall, so your height, so for me it would be 170, 
and then you fold it into half and the half should go around your waist and if it meets mm-hmm. then you are within the range of you know you're okay you're mm-hmm. fine you're healthy but if the two ends don't meet then you are overweight or you're you know you carry too much weight around your your belly basically mm. and that's really what you should be worried about really what sits around here yeah around your waist rather than maybe around your bottom no, so I it's a very yeah i saw this on the bbc program about obesity and it's a really good thing it's really really easy to do it's just much easier than maybe you know taking mm. the measurements around your waist and stuff like okay. that so yeah so that's the string test all right so what lou is saying is that she feels much bloated at the end of the day and yeah. what can she do about this yeah so what were your thoughts I think a food diary is always a good way to start. That would be my first initial thing. And then just watch over a week to identify if there's any common food that you eat in the evening and maybe, you know, see if that might be causing Mm. some bloating, whether it could be drink or food, and then take it out of your food or out of your dinners or, and then just see what happens. So for me, that would be the first thing to do if there's some sort of food allergy. I mean, you could test, I suppose, but... Not everybody has the means. So I think, you know, you want to start simple. And by simple is just making a note of what you eat and see if there's any mm. specific foods that might cause some bloating, especially in the evenings. If there's something that you're eating that doesn't really agree with you, that makes you feel bloated and then cut it out. Yeah. That would be my first step. Yeah. So an elimination diet, I think, can be quite targeted about it. So cutting out some obvious food groups, like maybe gluten, lactose bring them back in see what happens cut them out for at least two weeks and then bring it back in so if you're cutting out lactose no predominantly dairy products cut that up for two weeks bring it back in measure measure using the string test measure using how you feel how energized you are and see what impact that has and go through the same for gluten perhaps the same for some other food types as Mm. well that you think but I, i think just heightened awareness to start with as you say Maybe intuitively, Lou, you'll, you'll get a sense of which foods are kind of working for you and which aren't. If you wanted to spend some money on this, there's a few other things you could do. There's a food intolerance test. So we've got a company that we work with, and I'll link to that in the show notes. For less than, I think it's £60, you can get a really comprehensive a food intolerance test, which I've done, and it flagged some really interesting things, actually. So almonds I'm apparently intolerant to. For non-food products, cotton. I had no idea about any of these things. It's a simple hair test. You pull out a couple of strands of hair from the root, put it in a bag, mail it off, and about three weeks later, you get the results. So that's one way you could go. Another way you could go is a DNA test. Again, we'll link to all of the stuff in the show notes. The DNA test will tell you the type of diet that you respond best to according to your unique genotype. We've obviously done that. It's a a core Mm. part of, of the packages that we offer and the products we offer. But that would take out a lot of the guesswork, Lou, from, from what you're doing. It'll tell you your sensitivity to gluten, lactose, carbohydrates, saturated fats, and then what your requirements are for certain micronutrients, but also vitamins and minerals. Mm. So that's another route you could go. That will help you to understand, you know, at high level, are you tolerant to lactose or gluten? Are you eating the kind of diet that, that your body is responding best to, or are you fighting against your genes? The thing to be aware of is, is what you're causing by eating the wrong types of foods, or at least potentially, is inflammation. And we know that inflammation can lead to a number of different things going on in yeah. your body, but yeah. mental health conditions can be one. We now think there's a link between gut health, inflammation, and depression, for example. But certainly I know when I consume foods that are rich in lactose and sugar, or both, then I get sort of yeah. a little bloat as yeah. well. So 
I know what to avoid and what's going to happen if I have those foods. So the food intolerance test is one. The DNA test is another. The other test that you can look into, which is a bit more expensive, you're looking at about 550 or even 600 pounds for this, with the consultation with a functional medicine practitioner, that said, is a GI test, so a gastrointestinal test, a gut test, basically. It's a stool test, so a little bit fiddly to do, but once it's done, it's done. I've had this done a couple of times, and the two tests that we would recommend would be the GI MAP or the GI FX. And if you're interested, we can give you a bit more information on the difference between those two. We partner with two different functional medicine practitioners to offer those tests. So that's something, Lou, that we can pass your way if you're interested. But that essentially will tell you what's going on in the gut, the prevalence of bacteria, the diversity of bacteria, and that will probably take out Mm. a lot of the mystery about what's going on for you. Yeah. So there's a real range of things that you can do from free, but takes more time, to doesn't take very long at all, but it's going to cost you several hundred pounds. And then there's a couple of things in between. In between, yeah. So it's really, Lou, that's something for you to have a think about as to how much you know, investment you want to put into this. I would encourage you certainly to get to the bottom of it, however way mm. you do it. It sounds quite extreme, you know. In yeah. the morning, she's fine, normal measurements. And then in the evening, a couple of inches apart. I mean, yeah, that is quite substantial. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely recommend getting to the bottom of that. Yeah. Um, yeah okay so hopefully that's been helpful we've covered off quite a lot in a very short period of time the link between the sinus the lungs and the brain the benefits of walking a little bit of exploration into what Lou can do about that bloating and those digestive issues if you're listening to this and you wonder where you score what we call our health IQ test jump onto the website bodyshopperformance.com click take the test on the home page it will take you through to our short 24 question test And at the end of that, you'll get a score on our six signals, including digestive health, the one we've talked about, including mental health, another one we've touched on. And you'll also get a free 39-page report talking about those six signals and giving you tips in all of those areas. So that would be a good next step. If you want more information on any of the tests that we've talked about, drop us an email down to info at bodyshot, with a T, performance.com, and we can get some information out to you. And if it's not something we do, we can can refer out and make introductions for you. Particularly on the gut test, that's something that we will just pass you over to one of our functional medicine partners. So that's a a good call to action. And of course, the thing that you can do with all of this is just increase your awareness of what's going on for you from a physical and, and a mental perspective. Just heighten your awareness to what's going on within the body, how you feel, how you feel in response to certain things. That, I think, is another really good place to start. Mm. And think about health span, not lifespan. So it isn't about living a long life, you know, as Antonia touched on. It's about living a healthy life. I don't want to be 97, but I've been fed with a spoon for the last 20 years and taken off to the toilet. I want to live a long and fruitful, healthy, useful, vital life for as long as possible. So health span, not lifespan. That's all from us. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, bodyshopperformance.com and click on take the test and it'll take you through to a very short two to three minute health IQ test. At the end of that, you'll get a scorecard based on your results and a free 39 page report built all around our six signals, which are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion and fitness. So jump on the website, bodyshopperformance.com and take our test. Finally, thanks for listening to this show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and it's added value to you, share the episode with someone you think could benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a rating, a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.